Hello, and welcome to another Point of View. Joining us today is Steve Palmer. Thank you for being with us, Steve. Delight to have you here in my uh, recording studio, in my <laughs> yeah. home here. <laughs> the yes. cottage behind yes. his house. All right, so a brief introduction. Uh, Steve Palmer is an ordained pastor who has spent the past eight years serving at St. Stephen's Anglican Church. Steve began his studies at Wheaton College, based outside of Chicago, Illinois. Steve entered into Wheaton originally with aspirations of becoming a medical doctor, even going to medical school at the University of Buffalo for a brief time before realizing he wanted to dedicate his life to the ministry. With the support of his loving wife, Kamala, uh, Steve enrolled into the Masters of Divinity program at Trinity School for Ministry just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Steve is now currently working on his PhD through University of Aberdeen with a focus on the beatific vision. In his time off, Steve enjoys trail running and spending time with his wife and four children. All right. Nailed it. That's me. <laughs> Welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Clark. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Uh, so just to start off, we wanted to get a little bit about your backgrounds and hear about your conversion to Christianity, um, what sort of experiences or thoughts came together that led you to become a Christian and then eventually decide to pursue the ministry? So like a lot of people, I grew up in a Christian family and from as early as I can remember, uh, attended church and heard Bible stories and heard the Christian gospel. So there's not really a time before that that I can remember. But there were a number of important milestones in my life where my faith uh, became my own, something that I not only embraced intellectually, but uh, rejoiced to take on, to have a relationship with God through Jesus. And I can tell you about uh, some of that. Um, uh, maybe just a bit of my life story as well. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, fittingly born in a blizzard in January <laughs> in Buffalo. Sounds good. I think half half the population is born in a blizzard in Buffalo, <laughs> New York. So we, uh, my parents uh, lived in the city briefly, and then they had this crazy dream to move out to the suburbs and build three houses on the same property, which they managed to pull off over a few years. And eventually, as they built the third house, we moved into that one, and both sets of my grandparents lived in the other two. And so it was this kind of idyllic, amazingly uh, wonderful childhood experience. My little sister and I would come home from school, walk down our driveway, and we had our choice of what kind of chocolate chip cookies to have, whether Grandma Jean, <laughs> who was waiting to ambush us first, and if we got through her, it was Grandma Joy with her chocolate chip cookies. Grandma Joy usually had the bigger ones because she just put the dough on in enormous gobs on the uh, cookie pan. So you so, knew where to go. We knew where to go. <laughs> the That's actual right. dream. That's right. But it was a really uh, loving family environment. And I mention that because my grandparents, who were somewhat strict with their own kids in raising them in the faith, mellowed out by the time they were grandparents. And they turned out to be amazingly kind, loving, and joy-filled Christians. And that had an enormous impact on my life. And so there's kind of this interesting dichotomy. My parents were, uh, would take us to church 
and we would pray at mealtimes, but beyond that, they didn't talk much about God or the Bible, and it was even sort of awkward to do so in our home, mm-hmm. apart from those more formal pray at mealtimes and um, go to church. Meanwhile, in the afternoons, when my sister and I would come home from school, we had these amazing Christian mentors, and in particular, one of my grandfathers, uh, he had a... Uh, Welsh name. His name was Grandpa Welby, quite a character. He was an amazing mentor to me. And he was really the first person who showed me that the Christian life is not just about duty. It's not just about uh, conformity to family values or cultural values. He had a living faith and a joy that radiated out of him. And part of that was his own experience. He served in World War II in the Navy and had a dramatic conversion during the war. And uh, for 50, 60 years thereafter was a man who lived biblical Christianity in a way that had an enormous influence on me. And I I saw his life. I saw the love, the self-sacrifice, the genuine happiness he had in being a Christian. And that was attractive. And, you know, I think we've all met religious types who are not particularly happy or attractive (laughs) in their faith. That was not my grandfather. He was a guy who enjoyed life because he enjoyed Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, being exposed to him day after day for years had an immense uh, effect on me. So I could tell you more about him. um, But then a, a few milestones that were helpful in my coming to understand Christianity Really, these are all milestones about grace. Um, Grace is the Christian concept, uh, not just that God is kind to us without us deserving it. Uh, That's kindness, that's that's unmerited favor, but grace is the concept of demerited favor, that we've (laughs) actually done bad things, we deserve punishment, uh, we have broken the moral commandments of God, and in spite of that, God is a father who looks upon us and says, I have mercy on you. I love you. I welcome you back in. And that, that's a radical experience to have. Simple to explain in a couple of sentences, but totally life transforming when right. you experience what grace is all about. So a couple of moments where I understood that. Uh, one was, I think it was about eighth grade. It was summer after eighth grade. Uh, I had been struggling all year with some thoughts that were racing through my mind. Um, In my case, it wasn't so much sexual thoughts or things of that nature. It was more the profanity and the insults of my public middle school that were, that I would hear over here in the hallways and they would run like a circuit through my mind. And so whether it was uh, cruel things that students would say to each other, uh, whether it was, um, uh, swear words or just other things, I, I was sort of in the grip of this negative mental loop. And, and looking back, I was never diagnosed, but I probably had um, mild obsessive compulsive uh, symptoms at the time because it was just a pattern of thoughts that I couldn't mm-hmm. break. Anyway, uh, I was reading in the New Testament in a, a book called Romans, a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. And he described an experience that was very similar to what I was going through. He said, I see the thing that I want to do, and I can't do it. And so here I am, I want to break this pattern of thoughts, and yet I can't do it. And then he says, I I see 
what I don't want to do, and yet I keep doing it. I keep indulging in these thoughts, which are so negative. And he really builds to this very emotional climax of, here's what I want to do, I can't do it. Here's what I don't want to do, I'm doing it. It's a deeply psychological experience. And his, his climactic line is, um, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And that was a moment where I deeply identified with the Bible. It was no longer just a Bible story that I had to learn to, you know, get the uh, church snack and the apple juice or whatever after <laughs> yeah. the Sunday school lesson. This was my life on the biblical page. This was this guy describing what I was going through. And I could not wait to see what he was going to say next because I was a wretched teenager myself. And here he is saying, wretched man that I am. And his next line is, but thanks be to God for Jesus. And that was such a striking line to me because I had an epiphany at that moment that I couldn't have put it in this language then as a 14-year-old or whatever. But it was a recognition that Jesus didn't come just to sort of give me an invitation into the Christian life or just say, hey, you've done some bad things in the past, and now I'm going to wipe your past clean and come on in. But Paul was talking about his experience as a Christian in an ongoing way, and he was saying that I cannot live a single day of the Christian life apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, that I remain dependent in an ongoing way on Jesus, that I'm always a wretch apart from this supernatural grace, kindness, help, mercy that comes from the outside. And that was a new idea. It's not just Jesus brings you into the club. Jesus is the one who sustains you, and God relates to you in that kind of radically gracious way. I'm not doing it justice here in just a few minutes, but... So, yeah. can I just uh, interject sure. real quick? So, was the kind of unconscious assumption that you were working under was uh, you thought that you had been saved, you had converted into Christianity, but you were kind of assuming that it was like a once and done kind of thing of, all right, so my past is clean, but now I got to, I got to clean myself up now Mm -hmm. to stay in Christianity. Yeah, I think that's, that's the idea. And I think I was a Christian already by that point. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is in some sense, the Christian life is about reconversion every single day. Mm-hmm. That's right. that's the thing, that you wake up every day in some sense depending on yourself, not fully believing or trusting in the grace of God. And every day you have to remind yourself that you are dependent on mm-hmm. Christ, that you're a wretch in a Savior's hands. And the way Jesus put it, he said, I didn't come for healthy people, I came for sick people, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous, I came for people who are a mess And the moment you recognize, I cannot do this on my own, that's the moment that his power and his help and his forgiveness can flood into your life. And until you get to that place, um, you are cutting yourself off from divine power. You're cutting yourself off from what God wants to do in your life. So that was a a powerful moment. And, And I haven't had many, you might call miraculous experiences in my life, but when that epiphany hit me, the cycle of thoughts that ran through my head broke that hmm. moment. Like that retreat, uh, we came home, it was over. In fact, that very day, that that actually, that moment, I didn't have the obsessive compulsive hmm. tendencies anymore. And I've had plenty of other experiences, which I can share where there hasn't been such a dramatic change. <laughs> sure. But that uh, that almost spooked me and it thrilled me. 
mm-hmm. that God could break into my life in such a powerful way. Sure, sure. Let me share just uh, one other story of grace. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I had a, an experience of doubt later on in high school, and this may be interesting to some of your listeners who are questioning about faith or struggle with doubt or wonder the role of doubt in their lives. Um, uh, again, sort of a reverse experience. I was on this retreat, and instead of having this dramatic spiritual catharsis, mm-hmm. the way I just described, all of a sudden the thought just entered my mind, what if this whole thing is just a sham? What if the Bible's not true? What if God's not real? If Jesus is not uh, the Son of God, the atonement, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Maybe Christianity is just a farce. And I would say it wasn't so much a set of intellectual propositions that troubled me. It was more like a a mood. Uh, It was a a depression for sure that settled down upon me. And I figuratively speaking, I went down into a valley of spiritual depression for months that I didn't ask for. I didn't even feel necessarily, it's hard to describe, not even necessarily intellectually unsatisfied with Christianity, but nevertheless, there were, were so many questions and it lingered for six, seven, eight months. Um, and then finally, just kind of lifted gradually, but there was no mountaintop experience this time. <laughs> right, there was right. no like, oh, wow, thanks God for teaching me exactly what I had to learn here and explaining everything about why I had to go through that experience. Far more Im- ambiguous than that. But I would draw at least one lesson from it. And again, it relates back to grace. Before that experience, I would have said that I know that Christianity is true and I can demonstrate it to myself and I can demonstrate it to other people, I can pull out my arguments for, for the Bible and philosophical arguments and all those things. And I do believe that uh, the, the case for Christianity is quite intellectually strong and we can talk about it. But even that case is not something that I'm like the master of. Even that case is not something where I'm standing on a mountaintop where I can prove spirituality or faith beyond a shadow of a doubt based on my own reasoning abilities? And if so, then you've kind of wandered outside of Christian faith because faith by its very nature means I remain independence on the God who has created me. And so now I see faith as God's gift into my hands. It is rational to believe. I think it's far more rational than the alternatives to be a Christian. And yet, even in saying that, the very nature of being a Christian is to acknowledge that I can't even sustain my faith without God's help. And that was a major thing that was corrected through this experience with doubt. Uh, I can't stave off doubt. I can't stave off depression. I can't stave off any of these things apart from God's ongoing help. So I say these are experiences of grace because they're experiences where I realized I am frail. I'm fragile. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, humanly speaking, I'm relatively bright and accomplished and all the rest. But when it comes to relating to the divine, I'm independence on God, and that's how hmm. he set it up to relate to him. Hmm. I'd like to ask you a little more about uh, the concept of faith that you just mentioned now, because you said it, you said that you had faith, um, and, but you said that faith is it's rational to believe. But typically we think about um, rationality as finding reasons, and then if you follow those reasons that'll lead you to the truth. And if you don't have those reasons, then um, you shouldn't believe uh, the truth um, that you (laughs) purport to have come to. Um, So 
could you hash that out a little bit and explain how somebody, how it can be rational belief, but that won't necessarily make you believe? Yeah, what I would say is it's not entirely, the case for faith is not entirely rational. It's an experience of God. And so you might think of it as a simple metaphor. It's like clues. God has given us clues in the natural world. He's given us evidence of the Bible's reliability, especially of the account of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the centerpiece of the New Testament to say, this is why you can trust that Jesus is God, why he can forgive your sins and redeem you, save you, and establish you for all eternity in his presence. So there are all those reasons, and I think it's more rational to believe in Christianity than the alternative, but you can't really know that it's true until you experience it personally. And that's, again, how God set it up. You have to enter into a relationship, which is a a fuzzy word. You got to be careful (laughs) what you mean by that. But I would say in reading the Bible, in being part of the church and all the rest of the Christian life, prayer especially, it is possible to know God on a personal level. The rational arguments can lead some people in. For others, it may be more a rich community that they experience and then lead them in. But until you have that personal experience, you may not have the the total confidence that some people are looking for. But it's available mm-hmm. should you live out the life. So the experience that you had in high school was that you you saw reasons to believe Christianity didn't seem false to you. Um, you were reading apologetics and things like that. But you still weren't believing because you hadn't experienced God yet. And then... You said over the course of a few months, it was a slow process, you started to gain a sense of uh, God? or Yeah, I would say it's more like that wasn't the first time I had experienced God. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. more like a spiral in which you continue to come to areas in which you recognize, you're, you're, to use the biblical language, you're trying to earn your way to God. In mm-hmm. My first example, it was break this thought pattern. And my right. second example, it was... <laughs> prove the truthfulness of Christianity. And -hmm. throughout the Christian life, you keep coming on these areas where you're trying to build yourself up to God, and God has to keep dismantling and tearing those things down. So at each point, there's a breakthrough into deeper grace. And I expect to continue to be on that spiral for the rest of my life, growing closer to God, but continuing to encounter areas where I'm trying to do it on my own. Um, But yeah, I think that somebody coming into Christianity would have that experience of recognizing that they can't forgive themselves of their own sins. People often say, I've got to forgive myself. Well, you actually need someone who's morally perfect to forgive Mm -hmm. you and to learn dependence in all those ways. And dependence doesn't mean weakness, but it does mean openness to what God is going to do in your life. It means the right kind of weakness, which leads you to God's strength. Mm -hmm. So I think that the term you said is, it's almost like you're being reborn every day. Right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's the goal. And not in a strictly cyclical sense, like you don't make progress. That's why I use the image of a <laughs> spiral. You're, yeah. You are making progress forward, but it's the same pattern of mm-hmm. repent of trying to save myself, repent of trying to live life on my own, turn to God for his grace, his help, his forgiveness, and then experience more of him. All right. Great. Thanks for talking about some of your background. Sure. Um, we're going to move on to... The topic that Steve is planning to talk about tonight, uh, which is the the Trinity. 
Um, I th- this is a very interesting doctrine. Um, uh, I had a conversation uh, about a few months ago with a friend of mine. Um, she's uh, she's not a Christian. She is more pantheistic in her views. Um, she was talking about how she's experienced a oneness with the the universe through meditation and things like that. And um, I told her some things about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and how in Christianity, the foundation of reality is multipersonal and the foundation of the reality is in some way love. And she said that she liked the idea of the foundation of reality being love, but she said, it just seems like with Christianity, there's, there's a lot to believe. <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of co- complicated, convoluted things that, uh, about Christianity. Um, like you, you got to believe that three is one and one is three. And then you have to believe that one of those three became a human being 2000 years ago. And then, died and that somehow made everything right with the world and there's this historical narrative and there's complex theology um so it can seem it can seem complicated unnecessary even absurd to some people that mm-hmm. you know there's just a lot there's a lot there mm-hmm. um but your position is that rightly understanding the, the trinity um as as you learn more about the Trinity, you come to love God even more and have a greater adoration for God. It's, you see this as a positive thing, um, if I'm if I'm correct. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot there what you said, and I'm sympathetic with what your friend uh, described as there's a lot to believe. It can seem like Christian doctrine teachings seem like just strange uh uh, appendixes of manuals that I've got to say I believe all this stuff and what's the relevance of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple things. One is uh, simplicity of belief is by no means an indicator of the truthfulness of something. So if you take uh, modern physics, for example, what modern physicists are discovering about the quantum level of reality flies in the face of common sense at so many levels. Same thing with general relativity. Mm-hmm. And so for anybody to just presume, number one, that because it's complex, therefore it's probably not true, or therefore it's just cumbersome and I don't want to deal with it, that I don't think is actually a very good argument when it comes to religion or science or anything else. You have, Like any other topic, sure. you've got to investigate and see what's really true. That said, I think once I describe a bit about the Trinity, it will come into focus more why Christians believe these things about God and how the Trinity actually solves problems rather than creates problems for religious people. Okay, well, maybe we should just move on to uh, a statement of the definition. Um, I got this out of the sure. the 39 articles of religion, um, and the first article is of faith in the Holy Trinity. Mm, so yeah. here's here's the definition. Yeah, and this is from the 16th century, so yeah, yeah. far away. Here it is. Uh, um, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, 
And in the unity of this Godhead there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So there's a, there's a lot there. You could probably <laughs> write a, a series of books about mm-hmm. the parts of that definition because uh, there's, there's so many questions. Many people have written a series of books, but yeah, keep <laughs> yeah, going, yeah. sure. Uh, so could you first, could you provide a, a sketch or a summary that gets to what you view as the essentials of that? What does it mean that um, there are three persons in uh, one God? How do those persons relate to each other? What does it mean when uh, people say that God is love? Um, could you just give us a general outline of, uh, yeah. you know, the Trinity in 30 seconds? <laughs> 30 seconds, yeah. yeah. No, you, you can, can have, you can have more, time. more time. Please take more time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Well, let me, let me try to explain why the Trinity is actually a doctrine of peace and of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can get into the technical follow-up questions, if you like. Yeah, sure. So ask the question, what are the alternatives to the Trinity? So Trinity is the idea that there's one God, and yet his oneness is, as you said earlier, multi-personal. Three persons who are somehow not three individuals, but three uh, unified uh, relationships of love in a single being. That's, in short, the doctrine of the Trinity. So here are some alternatives. You could be a polytheist, as most of pagan antiquity was, or of many tribal cultures today, and believe in many gods or many spirits. Now, the problem with that is, in their mythologies, you have constant warfare in the heavens, because, I mean, this may sound silly and strange, particularly if you've grown up in a Western culture where polytheism has never been necessarily something you've really thought about as a live option. Mm -hmm. But for most of the human race and for most of history, this has been kind of the default option to think of uh, religion of multiple spiritual powers in the heavenly places. And that's problematic because if you look at Greek mythology, for example, I have four little kids and we like to read the Greek myths. Zeus and Poseidon are always at war with the Titans or the Titans at war with the gods or gods are tricking one another and getting into all kinds of scrapes. And that, again, that may sound silly, but that filters down into your view of the world. Is there a universal order in the heavens, so to speak, that's governing the universe? Or are the gods themselves um, more like nation states who are always uh, in political battles for power and their cosmic fights are sort of spilling over onto the earth. And if you have that view, you have a, a rather combative and frankly insecure view of the gods. Um, you have to hedge your bets. You've got to worship multiple gods. There's a place in the book of Acts where Paul goes to Athens and Greece and he discovers that they've got so many idols around the city, they even have one uh, marked for the unknown God. They're just trying to cover all their bases. Like, (laughs) if we've missed anybody up there, here's a sacrifice (laughs) for that guy as well. And so uh, a polytheistic view, there's not actually peace or order in the heavens, and you're constantly worried that the God or gods you serve are not going to be powerful enough or able to care for you. So that's a set of historic problems with polytheism. On the other hand, if you're a strict monist and you say that there's only 
uh, one person in heaven, and this would be uh, the view of Islam, for instance, it's hard to see how such a God would be genuinely loving, not just doing acts of love, but how from his inner being and essence would be a God of love. In the Christian view, you have relationships of love that go all the way back into eternity itself, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's basically a way of describing that God has this intrapersonal, interpersonal love within himself. And again, this is a very rough analogy, but it's a kind of fellowship or family in God's life, the very terms, Father, Son, and Spirit, speak to this kind of relationship of love, which means that God has always been that way. And when it comes to a strictly solitary God, um, it's less clear why such a God would create the world, if he did create the world, what his motivations would be in doing so. Um, uh, In fact, the accent on such systems tends to be that God is great or God is powerful, but that's very different from the accent of Christian theology, which, the yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is completely great. He's the Most High. But his crowning attribute is that of love. And to take all these abstract thoughts and make them, again, more relevant to your listeners, I'd put it as a thought experiment like this. On the Christian view, God has absolutely no needs. He, he doesn't need to make the world. He doesn't need to make the universe or... Uh, creatures to love him, because on the Christian view, he already has all of that. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit love each other with this infinitely perfect love. It's like dancing and delight and pleasure and fellowship, all the humanly metaphors we can heap up, ratcheted up to an infinite degree. There is absolutely no deficiency in God. And once you feel the weight of that, you have to ask the question, well, why would he bother to create the world particularly if he knows it's just going to cause him a lot of trouble, which the world is a broken mess. And the answer cannot be he did it to increase his own joy because he is already infinitely loving and joyful in himself. And so the only possible reason for why he would create us is that he did it not to get more joy for himself, but to give his joy away to more creatures. The only possible reason, reason, in short, is because he loved you. There was no other reason to create you or me except that he loved you because that's who he is. He's the God of love and he delights to overflow with this love. Now that's a different picture. That's, that is the essence of the Christian God. God is love, says the Apostle John in his letter. And that is not what you find in other religious texts as the essence of divinity. Let me give just one last uh, metaphor for this and then can follow up with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a pastor, I've worked with families and I've worked with some families who talk about uh, a couple, talk about having kids, and there's a hint or sometimes even an overt sense when they talk about having kids of once we have this kid, our life will be better because we'll have this child who will fulfill us. We'll have more to our family, more to our life. And okay. we'll get to do all these fun things with our kid and our, we'll do these exper- experiences together, sports, music, arts, and so on. But there's this kind of insidious, frankly, frightening underlying tone of we're having this kid to meet our mo- own emotional needs. Mm-hmm. And you can see that 
in human families, right? And when you see that, when you see the father at the baseball game with the veins popping out of his neck because <laughs> he needs his kid to get a double to win the game for the team because his own emotional well-being is riding on it, you say, man, that is so sad that that dad can't just love his kid for his kid's own sake and that he needs it for himself. Mm-hmm. The Christian view is that God did not create us out of any emotional deficit on his own, but rather like a good father, he brought his children into existence simply because he loves them. And I know you don't have time for uh, to me to keep going on this theme Sorry. at length, but um, that's really what the essence of the Trinity is about. No deficiency, complete love, fatherly kindness of God overflowing from his own life into our world. And while the theology gets technical, that is the accent you see in Christianity and the tone of Christianity that is different throughout the entire faith as compared to other alternatives throughout the world. Hmm. One last thing. You said your friend is into pantheism. That Mm -hmm. would be the view that there's really no personality to God at all, that there's just a kind of cosmic oneness. I'm God, you're God, the ocean is God, the universe is God. And on that view, um, it's very hard to see like how we could make any moral judgments about what's truly good or evil. If there's no person or order or moral principle over and above everything else, um, it's hard to see why you or I or the universe or whatever you pick should have any special voice. Whereas the Christian view is, there's a good father with a good heart, and he's the one that sets the, the moral standards for the universe that he's created. So it sounds like on uh, the Christian view, the, the separateness of God from the universe, from his creation, is kind of a subtle, essential point that um, might go unnoticed. Yeah, absolutely. God is not his creation. They're, yeah. They're he, he's not his entities. creation, but he also doesn't need his creation. Doesn't need it. And that's what makes his love so precious. Because mm-hmm. if he needed it, then we're back to the, he made us because of his own emotional needs. But he doesn't need us, and yet he made us simply out of free grace. This is, this is the idea of grace again. It's mm-hmm. the nature of love. All right. So Clark and I were reading this definition and almost immediately we came up with just we came up with four different questions of like it's not hard is, to pick apart the trinity no, <laughs> yeah yeah how is this how is this looks contradictory um so we just wanted to we'll read through them and then maybe we can take them uh one by one and you can bring some light to this yeah so the first one is um one god the, the doctrine teaches that there's one God in unity of one substance, but there's three persons. How does that work? Uh, the second is, uh, the definition says that there are no parts to God, but if God is three persons, it would seem that three there are three parts to God because there's <laughs> three persons. Yep. Um, the third was... Um, you just You were explaining how, on the Christian view... Uh, God is multipersonal. He's a God of love, and that overflows into creation. The definition in the 39 articles says that God has no passions. Um, and typically we would think of a passion as 
love. Mm-hmm. Somebody's passionate. They're, they're in love with something. Yep. Uh, and then the, the fourth one we saw was, says that God is without body, um, but a, another Christian doctrine is that of the incarnation, where it says that one person in the Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ, um, became a human and presumably took on a real body and yep. yeah, has that body. So Yeah, that's a big deal. He was fully human. <laughs> yeah, right. Lots of church conferences about that one. Yep. Yeah, Good. so maybe we can take these uh, these one by one. So the first one was uh, there's one God in unity, one substance, but he's three persons. How is that not a, a contradiction? Great. I'd also like to ask yeah. real fast, too. Uh, you yeah. mentioned that this, this definition was from the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, how relevant does the church, the Christian church, take this definition seriously now? Or how would they? How relevant would they consider it now? Um, yeah. Probably depends on who you ask. I guess that's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it depends who you ask. This is a, a good statement of what you might call orthodox, with a lowercase o, orthodox Christianity, um, Bible-believing Christianity, that I think Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants who hold the Bible in high regard could all affirm this statement. Sure. It's, it's a restatement. And yeah, and on, on that point, just to mention, the Trinity is not some idea that philosophers cooked up. It's really just reading the Bible and paying attention to what the Bible says about the Father, what the Bible says about the Son, what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, and then integrating all of that data into a coherent picture. That's what we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the word Trinity is in the Bible. No, no, it's a word coined by theologians to describe what's in the Bible, Mm -hmm. but there are many Trinitarian passages, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 14, I think it is, uh, the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, and many other passages we could point to. You read the New Testament, you can't make it more than a couple of paragraphs before you've rounded the bases of Father, Son, Holy Spirit all being mentioned. And so Mm -hmm. the doctrine is just a systematic way of explaining how the three persons of God, one God, interrelate. So was the Trinity assumed um, back in the very beginning of the church? Like this is just something that everyone knew without having a clear definition for it. Yeah, it depends what you mean by assumed. The the seeds of the Trinity are even in what Christians call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. There are lots of fascinating places where God in the Jewish understanding is he's strictly one. That was so different from the ancient pagan cultures that they were around. The great Shema uh, is the statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That was like what it meant to be Jewish. You've got one God. And yet, in spite of that, You have these fascinating places littered throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, where God is spoken of in plural terms, even as early as Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter. And so, uh, very briefly, Jewish theologians, even before Jesus came, had this understanding that there could be plurality associated with the one God, uh, particularly ideas like the Word of God or the Spirit of God seem to be God and yet slightly differentiated from God. And when the New Testament comes along, those seeds blossom into the doctrine of the Trinity. And then the church itself, it took a few centuries to work out precisely um, how to understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating to one another. But that doesn't mean that there was... um, 
like something imposed from the outside. What the church knew is we worship one God. He showed up in the person of Jesus. Jesus has given us his spirit. It's all God. Now let's figure out how to talk about this one love of God in our midst. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Good. So, okay. so the first clear, precise statement of the Trinity didn't come till when would it be? About 400 AD or thereabouts? 300 AD? Well, again, it depends what you mean by clear and precise. I would say the New Testament is clear and precise mm-hmm. about what it means to know God the Father by worshiping Jesus through Jesus in the power of his spirit mm-hmm. and, and Father, Son, and Spirit being all God, uh, one God. As far as a technical definition, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 offered uh, really the baseline um, statement, but there were plenty of statements before that that were also in circulation as well that were faithful and accurate. You want to hit these contradictions real quick? That would be great, please. Okay, I'll try to go quickly. I was not expecting such uh, rarefied technical questions about the Trinity in this podcast, but <laughs> well, yeah, you know what to expect from us now. That's right. Yeah. right. Uh, great. So one God in unity and yet three persons. Okay. So uh, I think that the fact that the Trinity is a difficult concept could actually be a sign of its truthfulness. Um, you know, some people have said, theologians have said, who would have ever thought this up? This is not a perspective on God that is likely to have been concocted because it is conceptually difficult. So to anybody who says, oh, this seems so complex and why would I believe it? I, th- I think you can at least argue back with equal force. On the other hand, who would have made this strange thing up? If you're making up a religion, the Trinity is not like the most marketable <laughs> idea that you would go to about in- inventing God. Unless it's reverse psychology. Re- reverse <laughs> psychology? I don't know about that. <laughs> so basically, one God, three persons means God is infinite. We shouldn't expect to be able to fully plumb his depths. That doesn't mean we can't know him. But it means that he has to be talked about from two different perspectives. And here, again, a good analogy is modern physics. If you think about light, light can be analyzed as a wave, and light can be analyzed as a particle. Both of those analyses are true. Some experiments treat it as a wave, others treat it as a particle. And yet, modern science, in spite of all its brilliance and uh, brilliant people making theories, cannot fully integrate both of those realities. We know it's a wave, we know it's a particle, and yet we don't know how they're completely one reality of light. Now, if that's true of something in the physical created world, then how much more true should we expect that to be of God, the infinite mind beyond all things? I think I would be troubled if we could understand very little of the creator, but I would also be troubled if we could completely understand him because that would probably be an indication that he was created by a human mind. So what he's shown us is I am both one and many. I am both unity and diversity. We go off on a long train about lots of philosophical problems about how unity and diversity relate. The Trinity actually solves those problems, but maybe I should leave that one there. Uh, Before you go also, um, would you mind briefly describing the dynamic between between the Trinity itself? Um, if it's the, if it is the, the three, the three persons, three parts, excuse me, three persons. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think we've actually covered what each different person necessarily is, and I don't want to assume that everyone knows. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I, we said that um, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, it means that in God's own life, uh, God knows himself and loves himself and is in relationship with himself. Uh, so he's a narcissist. He's a narcissist. <laughs> no, he's he's not a narcissist precisely because he's three-personal. Uh, if he were strictly solitary, one person loving that same person, that's narcissism. Uh, the whole point here is the very nature of his love is that he is multi-personal, loving the other, the father loving the son, son loving the spirit. At some level, it's hard to peer into, you know, what does it mean that the persons love each other. It's not like they're making breakfast for one another or, you know, cleaning the bedroom or whatever. I mean, every like American family. Yeah. Right. Every, every earthly metaphor you come up with is going to break down at that point. Those are pretty good though. Yeah. <laughs> it means, it means that, um, God is father is the source of love, uh, that he pours himself out in knowing himself as the son or begottenness. And the Son loves the Father back in a unity of love, the spirit of love. What it basically means is um, that God's, God's nature is such that he is relationship. He is a fellowship. He, is, um, uh, he, he's not, he cannot be contained by what we would call a single person and yet he's not three individuals either. And once you've said all that, and you kind of have this idea of a pulsating, vibrating heart of love, I mean, that's about as far as the human mind can peer into making propositional statements about what uh, God is. But you could also, I mean, maybe this will help your listeners, everything that's true of the Father by way of attributes, love, mercy, power, grace, is also true of the Son and the Spirit, they're differentiated based on how they relate to one another. So the Father sends the Son. The Son is sent by the Father. Both send the Spirit into our hearts, into the hearts of those who believe. Um, but those are really just different ways of talking about how the one God relates to us as creating us and saving us and giving us a relationship with himself. Okay, other contradictions. Uh, your second one was no parts but three persons. So parts is actually a technical word there. It means you can't strip anything away from God uh, as if he's like customizable or something like, oh, if, like you play those Madden NFL games and you mm -hmm. can like make your own player or whatever and like, you know, dock some speed and that, but give more power or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, all those different meters or like, it means you can't think of God in those terms. Um, you can't strip away any of his attributes. You can't take any parts down. He just is. God is. And we describe how he is. But you can't think of him in such a way that um, even our words, our attributes, mercy, love, justice, so on, there are attempts from the outside to describe what he's like. But you can't, um, you can't take things away. And so by the same token, his three personality or three personness just is how God is and you describe him but no parts is not the same as persons parts is a technical term meaning you can't 
strip certain attributes away or reconfigure sure. God. Okay. Your third one, no passions, but God is love. Here again, passions is a technical term. Hmm. It means that the world cannot act on God. It does not mean that God cannot act on the world. And so the distinction here classically is between passions and affections. So passions means the world has power to reach up into the heavens and affect uh, God, to uh, hurt God or to compel God to do something or whatever it may be. And you find some of that notion in pagan religions. But the Christian view is that God has affections, including love and all the other wonderful attributes we've been talking about, in which he is intimately concerned with his creation. He loves the world that he has made. He is a good father. It's why he... He is the true father, and when he makes Mm -hmm. human men who father children, that's the tiniest glimmer, when they do it rightly, of the the love and generosity of his own life. So anyway, um, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. There's nothing in creation that God needs. He wasn't, Mm -hmm. nobody, nobody twisted his arm to create the world. He doesn't have passions in that sense. And in spite of that, he has overwhelming love for the world. So the distinction is uh, between active and passive. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if I were to hit Clark, I would actively be hitting Clark, and Clark would be the passive receiver. Yeah. Um, so he would be affected, and I would be affecting an action. So the thing is that God cannot be acted on, but he can act. That's right, yeah. Now, how is that... When we think about love in just the ordinary sense of the word, generally we think of love as having reciprocity of um, the love that you have for somebody else is love that's returned to you, and there's this, uh, this give and take. Uh, how, how does love, the idea that God loves creation, not uh, become like a one-way street? Yeah, good question. It's not a one-way street because God can still make relationship. And this is where um, the incarnation comes in to your final point. It's, it's, you have to be able to affirm two things. And this is why I think the Christian view of God is so life-giving. On one hand, there is nothing that human beings or this world, which is so broken, you look around, turn on CNN or pull up your web browser, there's so much wickedness, evil, sorrow in this world. And on one hand, you have to be able to affirm that in some sense, that evil, that wickedness cannot touch God. He's beyond it. And the reason that is important is because if he himself is vulnerable to it, if he is, has passions in that sense, or is passable to Mm -hmm. use the technical term, then it's not very clear how he's actually going to solve the problem. He's in the same boat as us. He's uh, subject to victimhood and, uh, whether or not he can ever set the universe straight is <laughs> quite unclear. In fact, it's probably not going to happen if he hasn't done it already. <laughs> and he himself is vulnerable to the wickedness of this world. That's a big problem. So one affirmation is he is invulnerable or impassable is the technical term. He, he is beyond human suffering. And then to hopefully not add a fifth contradiction to explain, but a <laughs> complimentary idea in the incarnation, and even before that, he explaining his heart for the incarnation before it actually happened in history in the Old Testament, his love for his people, but especially in the incarnation, 
he actively voluntarily chooses to enter our world as a human being and take on a deeper experience of suffering than any human being has ever known in the person of Jesus Christ. To live a perfect life of moral virtue, of kindness, of love, to do all of that absolutely perfectly and then get tortured and crucified as a result. And in that act of crucifixion, to take the evil and hatred of the world upon himself, and not only evil and hatred, but actually all of the penalty and punishment that we deserve for our own evil and hatred on himself, the worst suffering anybody has ever experienced, and he takes it on himself. So you have to be able to say both of those things about God. On one hand, he's completely transcendent beyond anything any uh, darts of poison that we could shoot up into the heavens, so to speak. And because of that, we have confidence he's going to conquer evil in the end. And then on the other hand, he has gone into the deepest possible darkness in the person of Jesus Christ. He has experienced personally as a man great wickedness and evil. He knows to a greater degree even than we do how horrible this world is because he's tasted it with his own lips. He's been flogged in his own back. He's been rejected and tortured and all the rest of it. And because of that, God is completely empathetic and sympathetic and loving with us as well. Now, I don't want to get too far afield, but I'll just ask, maybe I'm opening up a whole can of worms here, but did, would, uh, this definition says that God has no passions. Did Jesus have passions? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because in taking on human life, he took on all of humanity, which meant he's vulnerable. Yeah. Okay. So there's... Um, so would you say that one person of the Trinity has passions, but the other two don't? Yeah, here again we get into technical waters. Cyril of Alexandria, a great theologian if you want to look him up, uh, gave another uh, unsatisfying and yet true <laughs> description. He said, well, God suffers without suffering, is, was his explanation. <laughs> ah, okay, yeah. I understand. I think we cleared that up. <laughs> yeah, he said, <laughs> basically the idea is God suffers but as a human being, and that doesn't mean that it's like less true, it means He experiences it um, filtered through, in some sense, human experience. But precisely because he's God, he transcends it. He overcomes death, evil, and the grave. And both of those affirmations that I was saying earlier, complete transcendence and yet complete empathy, are true because of what God did in Jesus. Hmm. Fascinating. Hmm. We don't have a whole lot of time uh, left, but I'd just like to finish up by asking you, how how is the trinity integral to somebody's personal individual faith and as we mentioned earlier uh, adoration of god yeah um so like you're writing your uh your phd on the beatific vision which mm-hmm. is the christian idea of a christian finally in some sense seeing the trinitarian god yep um and rejoicing in that sight. How, how does the Trinity become a powerful experiential um, force in an individual's life? Right, so a few things here. One is, if people are interested, I'd really recommend they check out a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Very accessible uh, and 
walks you through many different areas of how the Trinity is relevant to the Christian life. And whether you're a Christian believer or not, I highly recommend that book to understand these things better. Uh, Another thing I would say is you could basically, all three persons are involved in all of the Christian life. But if you want to sum it up, the Father is typically associated with a loving creator. What I've been saying about created you not because of need, but simply because he loved you. That has a profound effect on how you pray, a profound effect on how you see yourself in the world. Are you in a world of chaos and chance in which there is no ultimate justice in the end? Or are you in a world that is overseen by your father such that whatever happens in this life, that there will be a final reckoning in which he will heal all things? If God's not a good father, then I'm not sure you have much confidence that even if there is an afterlife, it will be very just or pleasant or desirable for any of us. He's a good father. Jesus is the savior. It means he is paid for the sins of the whole world. Many people today aren't terribly interested in concepts of guilt or shame or moral rectitude or what have you. And yet, they tend to sublimate those feelings and people are actually walking around with a tremendous amount of shame and feeling like they're not the people that they ought to be or feel many voices of condemnation. They don't recognize them as their broken relationship with God. But we all need to hear that voice of authority telling us, you are okay. You're really going to be okay. In fact, you're beloved. And not just because somebody says so, but because somebody did something about all the wrong and evil things that you've done. To worship Jesus is to say, the God that I worship came into history and he solved my problems for me. He, he provided the forgiveness that I need. And then to worship the Spirit is to say that not only did God create me, not only did God provide this payment for my sins, but he is actually experienceable, experiential in the here and now. Like I can know him. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning of my own experience of knowing God, that he's not just, you know, sealed off in heaven. He is accessible when you sing Christian songs, read the Bible, pray, have Christian friends, fellowship the whole Christian life. God is present in those practices as you open your life to him. Can I give one final story of yeah, how I think this is sure. relevant? As a pastor, I find that for a lot of people, uh, non-Christians and also many Christians, uh, frankly, there's um, fear and uh, apprehensiveness when it comes to knowing God. For a lot of years, I would lead the baptism preparation class, and there's a certain group of people of um, they've maybe were raised in church until high school, then they kind of checked out because church was... Uh, drudgery or oppressive or whatever, then they have fun in their 20s, get married in their 30s, have a kid, and they're like, oh, crap, how do I raise this kid? Maybe I should go back to church. And so it's been like 15 years since they've been in church or been in church very much. And there's this almost attitude of like, oh, man, I, I'm grown up, I'm married, I've got a kid, i got a mortgage now, I'm not really excited about Christianity, but here I am, I guess this is the right thing to do. Right. And I say, you know, if that's what Christianity was, I'm not sure I'd be a Christian myself. I definitely would not be a minister devoting my life (laughs) to saying, hey, come know this God who's so awesome and loving. Um, There is a a better way to think about who God is. 
That better way is the person of Jesus Christ. When he came into the world, and if you read the Gospels, you see that his life was a living streak of healing and love and kindness and social redemption. He was compassionate to prostitutes and to widows. He opposed systems of oppression. He showed immense integrity under pressure. And in every other way, he lived human life the way we all desperately are trying to live it and wish that it would be lived. So here's my closing story. Um, There's a a theologian named T.F. Torrance, one of the big uh, writers of the 20th century, And before he became a well-known theologian, he was a chaplain in World War II. And uh, in World War II, uh, he was involved with a Scottish unit that was involved in the liberation of Italy. They landed from North Africa into Italy, and they fought these bloody, painstaking battles up through the Italian coast, liberating Europe. And one battle, after the gunfire died down, Uh, Torrance went out onto the battlefield and he saw this young private, a guy named Phillips, who was lying in the grass and he was mortally wounded. And Torrance kneels down beside this guy and he knows, and Private Phillips knows, that Phillips only has a few minutes left to live. And in those precious few moments they had together, Phillips looks up at Torrance, the chaplain, and he says, Padre, can you tell me, is God like Jesus? And Torrance had this epiphany that here was this guy who's raised in the church and who knew the Christian doctrines, and yet despite all of that, at the moment of his death, was frankly afraid and maybe terrified that though he really liked what he saw in Jesus, all those things I just said, he was afraid that God might be very different. Torrance leaned down and he said to the man, son, God is exactly like Jesus. And he blessed him and he prayed for him and Phillips died there on the battlefield. The doctrine of the Trinity matters so much because it is the statement that Jesus Christ, who has shown us the most virtuous and loving way to live human life, is God. He's God transposed into human form. And he's not some, uh, he's not just God putting a good face on. He's God full stop. That is God, Jesus Christ. And if you want to know the God that you're going to meet after this life, should you reach out and receive his salvation in Christ, he's exactly like Jesus. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity is really trying to say. Everything that you see in Jesus that is praiseworthy and admirable is how God has always been. It's the sort of God who made this universe and who will not rest until he heals it, until he saves every last one of us who wants that salvation. So that's why I'm excited to be a Christian, because God is like Jesus, and Jesus is the most admirable life uh, to be lived and to have for ourselves. Well, I think that's a good stopping point. Thank you so much, Steve. This was wonderful. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, guys.